Welcome and thank you for joining us for the Church by the Glades podcast. If you would like more information about Church by the Glades, including service times and directions, visit cbglades.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. I hope you know that when you choose to exercise your generosity and financially partner with us here at Church by the Glades, your generosity does not go to waste. Not only does it keep the lights on here, but God is using your sacrifice to change lives. For those of you that may not know who I am, my name is Pastor Charlie Hughes. I have the privilege and the honor of leading the young adult movement here at Church by the Glades called Rally. And a weekend like this, where the entire service is led out by young adults, we call this a rally takeover weekend. But you need to know that not only is the rally team leading out right here, right now for this service, but you're coming back tonight at 9 p.m. to rally in the new year with us. And I promise you, there's no better way to bring in the new year because it's gonna be a totally different service from the service you're currently at. Like, obviously, I'm preaching today, but I'm preaching a different message tonight. There'll be a different worship service. There'll be creative moments unique to that service. So look to the person you're sitting next to and tell them, I'll see you tonight. Don't you lie in church. You better come through. You better cancel your plans. You better carpool with whoever you need to. I'm going to see you here tonight for rally. I really do believe that God's going to meet us here in a special way, and it's the best way to start your new year. But as for the time we have together this morning, I want to deliver to you a, a New Year's Eve message that is kind of for that person in the room who still has their Christmas tree up. Is that anybody? Anybody still got your tree up? All right, this is a New Year's message for that person. I want to encourage you going into this new year from the story of the birth of Christ. Open up your Bibles, turn on your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. We're just going to read verses 18 through 24. It's the beginning of the greatest story ever told. Verse 18 reads this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband-to-be, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to publicly disgrace or embarrass her, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet Isaiah many years earlier. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Somebody say Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do. He obeyed and did not hesitate to take Mary home as his wife. If you're taking notes on this New Year's Eve, the title of this message is God with us, the God who can relate. It's important you understand that every year when we gather together to celebrate the birth of Christ like we did a week ago, it's more than just another birthday party for another baby. 
but it is a worldwide event of worship to acknowledge the facts that God Almighty, the creator of the cosmos, the one who hung the stars in their place, separated land from the sea, and that you and I together in our mother's wombs decided to put on flesh and become a man. This, my friends, is no small matter. This is a big deal. This is what biblical scholars and theologians describe as the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Just a fancy way of describing and articulating the Christian belief that Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who has existed for all of eternity past, decided to leave the comfort and luxury of heaven, be born of a virgin named Mary, to physically dwell among us in human form. This is why they called him Emmanuel, God with us. The title Emmanuel is of course First and foremost, a statement of affirmation of God's physical presence dwelling among us here on earth for the first time in a whole new way. But maybe you're here and you consider yourself a person of logic, a person of reason, and you're like, hold up, preacher man. How does that work? Because God is a transcendent spiritual being. How does God become a man, a, a physical being, flesh and blood? How does that work? That doesn't make sense. Well, let me do my best to break it down. You see, Jesus became a man, but he never stopped being God. Jesus was and still is fully God and fully man. I'm talking about two natures, simultaneously present in one person, forever and always unmixed. Jesus took on humanity, but he never took off his divinity. So. When Jesus was born, Mary, his mom, probably didn't know whether to give him milk or give him praise. (laughs) Joseph, his earthly father, probably didn't know whether to call him junior or call him father. He was divinity in a diaper. He was heaven in a manger. He was eight pounds and six ounces of eternity invading earth. He was and still is Emmanuel, God with us. Is there anybody who believes that in this church? But if you ask me, the real beauty of the incarnation that makes it cause for global celebration is that it was God through the birth of Jesus initiating relationship with us. How many know that if you want something done right, if you want something to last, If you want something to stick, if you want something to endure the test of time, if you have a message that is so important that you need it communicated clearly and you cannot risk confusion, you don't send someone else to send the message. You don't send someone else to get the job done. You don't send someone else to run the errand. You don't send someone else to accomplish the assignment. No, you do it yourself. Jesus knew that in order to effectively and successfully establish and initiate a salvation-carrying relationship with humanity, with us, who who was spiritually dead due to our sin, it was not something for him to send a prophet to do. He knew it was not even something for him to send an angel to do. But Jesus knew that it was something for him to do because he knew he was the only one who could get the job done. 2 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 21 tells us, For since death came through a man, that man being Adam, the resurrection of life must come through another man. That man would end up being Jesus. Jesus being God, but becoming a man is what made Jesus eligible 
to die in our place. But it was the divinity of Jesus that gave Jesus this unique ability to remain sinless so that way his substitution for us on the cross would actually mean our salvation. The title Emmanuel, as I said a few times now, it means God with us. But did you know, church by the glaze, that the name Jesus means the Lord saves? But stick with me. How could have Jesus ever been the Lord who saved if he first not become Emmanuel, the God who was with us in physical, present, human form? But you know, it's interesting. People nowadays don't really use the saying, the phrase, I'm with you, to describe their physical proximity, closeness, or presence in relation to someone else anymore. At least people my age don't. <laughs> More often than not, the way I hear people use the saying, the phrase, I'm with you, is to describe their ability to relate. Yeah, to, to understand to sympathize, to, to empathize. I really don't think it's a stretch of the text to say that through Jesus, God becoming a man, not only was Jesus making a statement of his physical proximity, but I think Jesus was making a declaration about his relatability. Think with me, Jesus could have decided to enter humanity any way he wanted to. He could have chosen to enter humanity in very unrelatable fashion. The Jewish people actually anticipated that Jesus would, that their Messiah would come in the form of a military leader or a political figure, but rather, Jesus chose to come in the humble form of a whining, crying baby. Why? Because Jesus' main concern was not to rule as much as it was to relate with everyone he could and in every way he could. Jesus chose to enter humanity in the form of a baby so that way he could quite literally meet us on our level. This is the beauty of the gospel. Not that somehow we found our way to God, but that God came to us. And for this reason, my friends, he can relate. He can relate with you emotionally. While it is true that Jesus certainly and clearly has some dominating characteristics, such as his self-control and his compassion, I don't think it would be right for us to say, though, that Jesus' mood during his 33 years of life was at all times unchanged, unbothered, and unprovoked. Because based on what we see in Scripture, Jesus seems to have experienced the full scope of human emotion, which is important for us to affirm if we are going to claim that Jesus is God who became man because emotions are an essential part of the human experience. There is no human being alive today who is able to escape the reality that is their emotions. And while we definitely do not and probably should not be controlled by our emotions, it would be naive of us to underestimate the power that they have. You know, I, I think emotions kind of get a bad rap sometimes because if left unchecked by reason, we all know that our emotions alone can lead to impulsive, poor decision-making. 
But at the same time, if we completely remove our emotions from the decision-making process, we may be left without the ability to make decisions at all. I know my dad made fun of people last week during our Christmas services for people who say this, but in my research, I, I learned that our emotional responses play a large role in what psychologists describe as our automatic survival nature. And many of our emotions actually take place beneath the level of our awareness. Meaning, how cool is this? Our emotions are quite literally programmed in us by God to be survival mechanisms. That, that God has given us our emotions to be divine tools of discernment for, for this reason. Our emotions are not to be suppressed, but channeled. Our emotions don't have to be what always seem to get in the way because when channeled properly, when submitted to a renewed mind in Christ Jesus, our emotions should help show the way. Our emotions have been given to us by God to help lead us into living the lives that he has for us. I don't know about you, I don't know if you can relate to this, but sometimes in decision-making moments, well-meaning Christian people will give the advice, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Anybody ever given or received this advice before? Make some noise, wave at me. I just want to know who I'm talking to. Who, who can relate with me? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Now, you may be way tighter with Jesus than I am. You may read your Bible all day, every day. Don't judge me for this, but I've never found that advice all that helpful. Because I don't know about you, but if I would have already known what Jesus would do, I would have already done it. And I don't know about you, but Jesus often catches me by surprise in Scripture with the things he tells me to do. Turn the other cheek, never would have thought of that. If told to go one mile, go two, I hate cardio, no thank you. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This guy, Jesus, has to be crazy. I don't have the easiest time always knowing intuitively, automatically, immediately what Jesus would do in any or every situation. But I will say, by studying Jesus' character in Scripture, by taking notes on what behavior seems to break his heart and what behavior seems to bring him joy by watching him interact with others. I do feel like, although I may not be able to know how, what, what, what he would do in every or any situation, I do feel like I have a decent enough of his character and his heart to at least maybe know how Jesus would feel in most situations. Maybe that's the question we should start asking ourselves in 2024. Not that WWJD is a bad question, but maybe a better question is, how would Jesus feel? How would Jesus feel about that? How would Jesus feel about this decision I'm thinking about making? How would Jesus feel? It's the emotion of Jesus that brings personality to the man we read on the pages of our Bibles and creates the opportunity for relatability between him and us to take place. It's the variety of emotion that we see Jesus embrace and express 
in the four books of the Bible to tell the story of his life and paint the picture of who he is, that we not only know how Jesus lived, but how we should live. Which is why before I go any further, I want to make something abundantly clear. Can I go ahead and do this? Is that cool? Is that cool? Let me know. I'm going to do it anyways. Is that cool? Okay. Listen. Jesus had emotions, but Jesus' emotions did not have him. I'm going to say it for this side of the room again because you guys obviously missed it. I'm going to do it one more time. Jesus had emotions, but Jesus' emotions did not have him. Are you with me? Every feeling has a thought. And every thought has a feeling. Having certain thoughts that arise from certain feelings in itself is not necessarily sinful. It's it's acting on certain thoughts that arise from certain feelings that can be sinful if we are not careful to take every thought captive like Jesus did. This is the example we are to learn from. Jesus knew the power of his emotions. And for this reason, he he embraced them appropriately. He showed them strategically, and he expressed them tactfully. Let me prove it to you. It was the righteous anger of Jesus as seeing traitors turn his father's temple into the headquarters of their scam operation on the Jewish people that led Jesus to flipping tables. It was Jesus' extreme sadness at receiving the news of his dear friend Lazarus' passing that that led Jesus after days of mourning to approach his dead friend Lazarus' tomb and tell Lazarus, get up and walk. It was Jesus' radical love for the world that he entered humanity as a baby in the first place. It was Jesus' radical love for the outcast that led him to sit down and eat and befriend those who, who most other people during the day and age would not even give a second look. It was Jesus' radical love, my friend, for you and I, that led him to living 33 years of a perfect life and then dying a death he did not deserve in our place. Oh, Jesus was in touch with his emotions. So much so that it was in a moment of radical action, fueled by remarkable emotion, that Jesus gives credit for our salvation. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God, that Jesus, proved his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm just trying to encourage someone this morning. No matter how you may have came in this church feeling, happy or sad, excited or exhausted, delighted or depleted, Jesus is with you. He can relate. Jesus can relate with you emotionally. But you might be surprised to learn that Jesus can also relate with you experientially. Jesus did not decide to put on flesh, but forego all the inconvenient and unpleasant aspects of the human experience. No, from big to little, from major to minor, Jesus experienced it all. Jesus was born. Jesus went through puberty. Jesus was forgotten, left at the temple by his parents. Jesus had to do what his mama said even when he didn't feel like it. Jesus got into the family business of being a carpenter and Jesus changed careers and started a ministry. 
Jesus was rejected by his hometown. Jesus became famous in foreign places. Jesus had to make friends. There were times when Jesus wanted time by himself and all my introverted people said, amen. <laughs> Jesus had to wait 30 years for his time to come and then there were also moments when Jesus felt like he was being rushed by others to do or be what at the time he thought was not right. Jesus experienced it all. He can relate. But when I say that, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that everything you've been through or experienced, Jesus has also been through, done, and experienced. No, what I'm saying is that during his 33 years of life, Jesus went through enough real headache and heartache without compromising his character to say to you and I in a way that carries very real meaning and weight, I'm with you. I get it. I see you. I understand. I've been there. I empathize. I sympathize. I can relate. Jesus knows what it's like to be illegitimate. Can you imagine the hard time other kids would have given Jesus growing up because his mama claimed that his daddy was God? Jesus was probably perceived by many to have grown up in a broken home. Jesus knows what it's like, my friend, to be a refugee. After Jesus was born, King Herod, the king of the day, issued a decree that all newborn Jewish boys were to be executed. So to save Jesus' life, his earthly father, Joseph, packed up the family and moved the family to Egypt. Jesus knows what it's like to be underestimated and overlooked. Time and time again, as Jesus started his ministry, people would look at him dead in the eye and say, what good can come from Nazareth? Jesus knows what it's like to lose loved ones. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is present at the cross for Jesus' death, but Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, is nowhere to be found. He's actually not mentioned after Jesus is 12 years old. It's thought by many scholars that Joseph probably died while Jesus was a child or a young man. Jesus knows what it's like to be falsely accused. He was, he was convicted, he was arrested on lies. Jesus knows what it's like to be taken advantage of by someone he trusted. It was one of his own dear friends and disciples, someone he spent time with and poured into Judas who handed him over to be executed by his enemies for just a small bribe. Jesus knows what it's like to be alone and ashamed. Scripture tells us that it was on the cross that Jesus took on our shame. And with his last few dying breaths, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it's like to be disadvantaged. Jesus knows what it's like to be disappointed. Jesus knows what it's like to be discouraged. Jesus knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back. Jesus knows what it's like to be stressed out. Jesus knows what it's like to want to quit. He can relates. Jesus, he can relate with your trouble. But get this, Jesus can also relate with your temptation. 
I'm about to mess up somebody's theology right here. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, we do not have a God who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have a God who has been tempted in every, in, in every way that we have been, but yet he did not sin. Oh, you think the devil made it easy for Jesus to be perfect? No shot. No chance. Knowing the threat that Jesus was to his agenda, the devil would have thrown the best he had at Jesus to get Jesus to fold. I'm talking about temptation of all different kinds and of unimaginable proportions. I'm talking about the most irresistible temptations and the most difficult of situations. But yet, Jesus, he did not fold. He did not sin. He, he never made a mistake. So, so when he tells us in Scripture to resist the devil and flee from temptation, he's not telling us as someone who is not first willing to do so himself. But he tells us from a place of experience, knowing it's possible. He says, I've been there and I've done that. I'm no hypocrite. I'm a man of honesty, integrity, and conviction. Every temptation you have faced, are facing or will face, I face. But the difference is Jesus was able to say no to whatever temptation was calling his name because he knew that what his father was calling him to was much more valuable. Jesus was able to remain perfect even under pressure because he knew that his purpose was worth it. Jesus was able to remain spotless even when sin was inviting because he knew that his heavenly father would use him in his perfect timing. I'm just trying to encourage somebody once again. I just wonder who I'm preaching to in this church, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're in the middle of, no matter what difficulty you're navigating, no matter what temptation you may be facing, Jesus is with you. He can relate. Jesus can relate with you emotionally. Jesus can relate with you experientially. But the final way I want to show you that you have a God who is with you, who loves you, and can relate with you better than anyone else can is this, God can relate with you existentially. It's a big word, are you impressed? I worked hard on that. Jesus can relate with you existentially. I don't think there's a single human being alive today capable of asking the question, who has not asked the question, why am I here? What's my purpose? What is the meaning for my being? Why do I exist? All people at all times, everywhere are on a pursuit for purpose. The question is, Church by the Glades, do you know what you're running after? Jesus did. And he ran after it with all that he had. He ran after it with what presented as reckless abandon. He ran after it even when it came at the expense of his own comfort or preference. He, he ran after it even when others looked at him crazy for doing so. He ran after it no matter What's the cost? What I cannot let you leave here today 
without hearing and knowing is that the same reason 2,000 years ago Jesus became a man he entered humanity in the form of a baby is the same reason you and I are here today it's to know God personally and then once you do it's to invite those far from him into relationship with him our family at First Baptist their battle cry is this we are here for those who aren't here yet I truly do believe that nothing will bring you a feeling of fulfillment in this life like fulfilling the function that for which you have been created living a life absent of purpose it's like walking in a room absent of light dark makes you scared hesitant to move forward out of fear of what you might move into or out of fear of moving in a direction not meant for you this is why I find it so wonderfully ironic and beautifully beyond coincidence that Jesus said that he came to be a light unto the world and that you and I as his followers are to be the same a light in the way we live our lives and love the world around us in a way that is so beautifully different that it will cause others to want what we have living a life of purpose as the light that God made you to be not only does it help point others to a relationship with their creator and there's no greater honor than that but I promise you I'm telling you it will bring meaning to every moment you live and it will bring clarity to every step that you take when you have a relationship with Jesus my friend you don't have to wonder why you're here you don't have to wonder what your purpose is you don't have to wonder why do I exist it's no secret it's actually stated clearly in the last few verses of the book of Matthew this is Jesus speaking it's famously known as the Great Commission Jesus is saying to you and I I'm paraphrasing here but you want to know what your purpose is you want to know why you're here you want to know why you exist fine you exist to know me then once you do help others know me then after that I want you to baptize them in my name in the name of my dad in the name of my best friend and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you but Here's what I really want you to pay attention to, the promise at the end of verse 20. Jesus again speaking, saying, and as you live this life of purpose, here's what I promise you. Be sure of this, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The God who has been with you and is with you promises to stay with you. There's no greater promise if in this new year, you want to start living the life of purpose that God created and called you to live by getting close to the God who became a man and left heaven to get close to you. Who knows you better than anyone else does. Who can relate with you better than anyone else ever will. Commit yourself to him and his mission. He promises to never leave you. He promises to never forsake you. But he says he will be with you always to the very ends of the age. He's the greatest man to ever live, and he's alive today, and he desires a relationship with you. Why wouldn't you want to know him? 
He had no servants, but they called him master. He had no degree, but they called him teacher. He had no medicines, but they called him healer. He lived in no castle, but they called him king. He ruled no nations, but they called him Lord. He had no armies, but kings feared him. He won no military battles, but he conquered the world. He committed no crime, but yet they crucified him. They buried him in a tomb, but yet I come to tell you on this New Year's Eve day, he lives today. Death cannot defeat him. The grave cannot contain him. Satan could not stop him. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the God who can relate. Is anybody starting to believe it this morning in this church? Is anybody starting to understand it? Come on, let the God who knows you, let him know that you love him as well. Give some praise for about five seconds. Five, four, three, two. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We exalt you. purpose and reason for which you exist is not as much to accomplish something as it is to know someone. Jesus was who you can never be. That way he could do what you can never do. He made no mistakes and he committed no sins, but yet he chose to die for yours. That way if you choose to enter into a relationship with him, you will be free. You will be saved from the punishment your sin has earned you. And one day, hopefully many years from now, when you die, you will have to spend eternity in paradise in heaven with him. Scripture says today is the day of salvation, meaning there's no better moment than right now to give your life to Jesus. Do not hesitate. Do not delay. There are prayer partners and pastors making their way to the edge of the stage right now. After I pray, come talk to them. And let's get you right going into this new year, knowing Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. For everyone else, if you already know Jesus, even if you don't, cancel your plans. You're coming back here tonight. You already told your neighbor, I'm preaching a different message, and I'm more excited about that message than this message. God is going to meet us in this place. There's no better way to start the new year. I'll see you at 9 o'clock. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Emmanuel, the God with us, the God who can relate. God, in 2024, don't let us forget it. God, I pray, Lord, that right now faith would rise up in this room. God, I ask, Lord, that right now that courage would begin to take place in the hearts of these people. That, God, they would leave here, and in 2024, they would have the best year of their life so far because they choose to live it for you. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. And it's in your name we pray together. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. We hope you enjoyed the podcast today. To hear more messages like this, make sure you subscribe and share with your friends. Don't forget to stay connected with us by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at CBGlades at Pastor D. Hughes.